Hi there, global citizens. Welcome back to the podcast that inspires a borderless mindset around manifesting a new world. I am your host, Florence Adu. I'm coming to you from Accra, Ghana. Actually, I'm coming to you from Tema. I live in a little bit of a suburb of Accra. And it's not quite raining season, but I think global warming is doing its thing here in what should be the rainforest. So we've been dealing with intermittent storms and flooding, and I'm so happy that I have my current guest to talk about such kinds of things and activating people to solve their problems. And he's coming to us from Washington, D.C., the U.S. Capitol. He is currently the Senior Director for Policy and Government Relations at Humanity United, where he leads the team responsible for engaging governments, multilateral institutions, and civil society in pursuit of policy change and regulatory action that cultivate the conditions for enduring peace and freedom. He has led global democracy and governance programs for over 15 years, which has included complex research advising on overseas investments, leading diverse development initiatives, including training senior staff of the Tanzanian government to improve service delivery to citizens, supporting members of the Iraqi and Kurdistan parliaments to increase outreach to constituents, working with citizens in Nigeria and Kenya to improve electoral integrity, and enhancing the ability of NGOs in Iraq, Nigeria, Sierra Leone, and Turkey to demand greater accountability from their governments. He also serves on multiple boards, including the Center for Racial Justice in Education, an organization that trains and empowers educators to dismantle racism in the U.S. education system. Kehinde Togun, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me, Florence. It's great to be here. I yes. also love so that you're I... not in Brooklyn. <laughs> right. <laughs> so did, um, did I pr- pronounce your um, surname correctly, Togun? Togun. Togun. Okay. Is it Yoruba? Yes, indeed. Okay. I thought so. Okay. So we'll find out all about that with my leading question, which is, Kahende, where are you from? Where are you local? And what is your craft? Oof, where am I from? I am from Nigeria. So I was born in Ibadan, which is in the southwest part of Nigeria. And uh-huh. I moved to the U.S. when I was uh, right before I turned 11. And I moved to East Orange in New Jersey. And I lived in East Orange for a couple of years. And then right before I went to high school, I went to my family moved to Orange, New Jersey. And those are just sort of like in my world, those are like transitory periods. While living in Orange, I actually went to high school in Newark for, I went to Catholic high school in Newark, New Jersey, and that's where I considered my second home. So growing up where I went to high school and college, uh, I went to Rutgers, Newark for college and then moved to DC for grad school and came back. So I always said I'm from Nigeria and New Jersey, but in my head, I'm actually from Nigeria and Newark. New Jersey is sort of like a place that happens to house uh, New Jersey, (laughs) happens to house Newark. So um, that's what I consider home. And that's so funny because so many New Jerseyans say that. <laughs> like, I'm really from New York, but we love Jersey too. It's the garden state. It's beautiful to drive through and it's our lovely neighbor. So it's all good. Okay. So what is your craft? So I work on citizen engagement. Um, so I work at, as you said, Humanity United. And a lot of the work that we do is engaging local actors, whether that's folks who are in conflict or folks who are workers, to increase their own agency vis-a-vis whether that's the corporate actors that they're uh, engaging with or the government or governments. So my work is primarily engaging citizens, helping our colleagues who are engaging citizens to figure out how do we increase their 
voice and their agency vis-a-vis -vis the U.S. government or multilateral institutions. So that's what I do currently. I come at this sort of through the private sector, uh, where I worked before and before that 10 years in development, working on, again, citizens' engagement and political party participation in the Middle East and Sub-Saharan Africa. But I would say that the core of my work is engaging citizens and figuring out how do we get citizens to be primary actors in their lives, whether whatever way that they decide that that should be. Mm -hmm. So I'm also a policy professional. I studied um, policy in graduate school. And I want to say that I probably didn't spend as much time in it because I didn't see the rewards as much as I would have loved to. And I know that this is, it's that work that you work on it for years and years, even decades. And then you're hard pressed sometimes to see the results of the work that you do. So just as that, as a background and as an aside, how did you decide that policy was where you thought you could see and fulfill your purpose? So it's interesting. When I was in college, I actually did this program at Princeton. It was sort of like a summer program for folks who wanted to be policy, who thought they wanted to be policy students. Mm -hmm. uh, and then a lot of us also were debating grad law school, right? So I was debating, like, do I go to law school or do I go to policy school? And I remember talking to one of the mentors in the program who said to me, what gets me access to the places I walk into is my law degree. And what I actually use when I'm there is my policy degree. Mm. Uh, so sort of the idea that the JD gives you access and people are like, oh, if he's a lawyer, he must be smart. Uh, mm -hmm. But then like the work and actually like how do you make people's lives better for him was through the policy degree. So that really stuck with me. And that's not to say I have lots of lawyer friends who do great work. So obviously you can make a difference in people's lives as a lawyer. But for me, I think it was sort of like the nuts and bolts was what I was really interested in. Like how do we actually make citizens' lives and how do we make uh, individuals lives and how to make government work better for me was a policy process. And I began my work initially doing inner city education, so education policy, and mm -hmm. then transitioned to health policy. And now I do sort of policy more broadly. And I think for me, all across the strain, each one of those things have been harder to define, right? So when it comes to inner city education, you can sort of think through what are parents doing vis-a-vis -vis their children and how's the school board responding to their their needs, right? Or in the health out system, how are the health outcomes? And what are the ways that we as uh, policymakers are incentivizing behavior change and things like that? I would say in the democracy and governance space, it's a little harder to define those outcomes because like, it's not just about elections, right? It's about processes and like these systems. And so how do you measure whether those things are, people's lives are better and democracy delivering as my old organization used to think of it. I think that's a harder thing to put a finger on. But for me, I think I consider myself an optimist. So it's in the space of like trying to make it better and trying to make people's lives better is what for me policy is about of like how do we actually make sure that the things that our leaders do policies that the laws they enact and then the government officials who are trying to implement them that they're improving people's lives and how do we make sure citizens are actively asking them to do that and telling them how to do it so as long as we're trying that i think for me it is you're right it's nebulous but it's sort of like that's what i live for so and obviously we want results but i think I'm in a world where like results are harder to achieve, mm -hmm. but the goal is to try. And as long as we're trying mm -hmm. and we are engaging in earnest, both as professionals, as our counterparts in government, and then as the folks that we're trying to support, as long as all of us are playing our part, I feel relatively comfortable that we're moving in the right direction most days. Some days mm -hmm. we're not, to be mm -hmm. quite honest. So. Mm -hmm. so what are some of your biggest wins in that regard? So I think that there are a couple... I would say that when I say my biggest wins, I would say that it's our, right? Because I don't, I've never worked in a vacuum. I've always worked in collaboration with others. Sure. And I think some of the biggest wins when I was at my previous organization, Partners Global, was around, we were working on citizens' engagement in Nigeria and in Sierra Leone as well. And so we were working with a collaborative of Nigerian civil society organizations who wanted their country to join the Open Government Partnership. And this is a voluntary process for folks to 
for governments to become more transparent and to make commitments about transparency. And so what I was able to do was work with a collaborative of folks, most of whom were Nigerian, but also there were some of our partners uh, in the UK, some also within in New York and other places, uh, to sort of think through what are the key opportunities to push the Nigerian government, both in terms of like there's a summit that's going to happen in the UK. How do we make sure that the Nigerians are there and that they're like actively confronted to say will you join this or will you make these commitments? But then also, how do we make sure that once Nigeria makes those commitments, that they actually make ones that are impactful or meaningful, that could be impactful? So I think having Nigeria join OGP was a key success for all of us uh, in that regard. I think in my current space, I've only been there about a year. Humanity United has had lots of successes. I hesitate to take credit for any one of them because I am new to this. And so I don't want, but there's certainly one example of the success we've had was the Tariff Act, uh, which is Section 307 of the Tariff Act, and how to make sure that goods that are made with forced labor are not allowed into the United States. And so like whether that's a, an import ban and things like that that are uh, implemented um, that prevents forced goods made with forced labor from coming to the U.S., HE was uh, instrumental in the coalition with our partners to get that to become more used. And I would argue that that's making a difference in people's lives. Uh, mm, mm-hmm. So when you say getting it passed or getting it, on the floor. So it's basically getting it passed is the work you're saying is was the win. With OGP, it was getting Niger to sign on. So it was a decision that the government made to say, we're going to join the partnership, right? Okay. Uh, right, which is a, it's a voluntary partnership. And they could, for a long time, under the previous president, Good Luck Jonathan, decided we were not even going to compete or attempt to join this, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and then there was a new administration, and we sort of made a full car press to say, the Buhari government says it cares about corruption. And so let's make sure the moment that you demonstrate that is by joining this partnership and then mm-hmm. making commitments uh, that are actionable. Mm-hmm. And so for the Tariff Act, that was pe- letting Congress passing that, correct? Con- yeah, so Congress had passed this law actually a long time ago. So a lot of that was working to actually define, to, to make sure that the CBP uh, Customs and Border Patrol actually implements this law okay. and defines in ways that are more meaningful rather than sort of the, uh, well, there are goods that we need. We know they might be made to forced labor and that's okay. So getting them to actually implement the law in the way that it was intended. Right, so that was what I was driving at is so, when you know that it's effective, it's because enforcement is effective. I mean, exactly. sorry, is effective. So exactly. you know now that there's an organization that is vetting all of those producers that are, I guess, filing for bringing in goods to the country. And so it's they're certifying that they have not used forced labor for those things. Yeah, exactly. There's an agency that's actually after, and a lot of civil society organizations who are actively looking through supply chains and sort of thinking through, well, if this was was made in Xinjiang, China, it probably is made with forced labor, or if this was made in a particular part of Malaysia, mm-hmm. let's look at their supply chains and let's see. And then if we know that they are, let's ask CBP to hold these. And then CBP responding to saying, yes, we know that we agree that these are made with forced labor, so we will not allow them into the United States. Mm, okay, interesting. So a big question that I wonder about is, is how... So part of this process is actually funding it, right? So, so funding the enforcement, funding the people that do all of that behind the scenes work. So tell us a little bit more about how that happens. So you're, tell us the mechanics of your organization. I know a little bit of background, but I, I'll ask you to, to share more of that. But the mechanics of actually funding these types of initiatives in a way that makes them sustainable. Yeah, so we, uh, HU, as you alluded to, is a foundation, right? So we were founded by uh, Pam Omidyar, and so uh, Pam and Pierre uh, were the founders of eBay. And so once they the company went public, they were fortunate to have a, quite a large sum of funds. And one of the, so they have 17 foundations that are part of the Omidyar group. Ours is one of them. Mm-hmm. And HU's, we have a sizable, we're not the largest foundation, but we have a pretty sizable budget. And we are in three different portfolios. There's the forced labor team that I talked about with the tire fact, and then there's a peace building 
team. And then there's this uh, public engagement that I sit on, which is part of has the public policy team within it. And so our team actually has one of those smaller funds because we fund policy initiatives. So whether that's NGOs that are working on policy change or academics and think tanks, uh, both in the global South as well as uh, in the North, uh, that are attempting to work on policy change, right? And then my colleagues who are on the portfolio teams actually have larger sums and they fund directly NGOs that are doing like work around conflict transformation or trying to reduce forced labor. And so there's a whole thing, there's a whole conversation to be had of sort of what does it mean for wealthy folks to be the ones that are doing this work exactly. versus governments doing this work. Exactly, right? exactly. And I think that's, a, that's, a, that's an important conversation to have. And there's like Edgar Villanueva talks about decolonizing wealth. And I think mm-hmm. that there's, it's a very active conversation necessary in that space of like, there's a lot of, there's a lot of folks who have made a lot of money in capital through the capitalist system. And some of them are choosing to give back. I happen to work for one of those. So grateful that that's the case. But I do think, I think what you're getting at is the macro trend of like, there's a lot of wealth that is uneven. Mm-hmm. And so there's a lot of work that I think all of us within my philanthropy are committed to. I'd say all of us, I'd say most of us, but certainly I think I could argue all of us within HU are committed to sort of figure out how do we dismantle that process and how do we make sure that we're not gatekeepers. And so one of the things we just, we're doing our org strategy now and some of the things that are coming up for us is how do we accompany partners so that we're not the ones that are saying, do this thing, we'll give you money for it. But rather they're saying to us, this is the thing, these are the things we want to do. So how do we then accompany them and how do we walk with humility? So we have a number of core values for us and humility really is one of the largest ones that we prioritize the most of. We're not in any room saying, trust us, where is you do this, right? It's more so how can we support you? And we know that we don't have all the answers. Mm-hmm. So let's work through this together. So I do think even within the critique of philanthropy, there's a lot to be said for how philanthropy can show up as an ally. And I think that's the space that we live in, even while trying to acknowledge that there's a capitalist system that is, at the end of the day, takes winners and losers. So how do we I would argue how do we make capitalism work better? And we have some colleagues in the other parts of the foundation that are working on reimagining capitalism. And I fully support that work as well. And then it's in that space of what does it look like to make attempt to make transformative change with these folks who've decided to do good with their money. Um, mm. So let's help them do that. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's a complex and complicated place to be for sure. Yeah, yeah. So one of my recent guests, Beckin Kosimoyo, he is a leading thought leader in philanthropy, African philanthropy in particular. And so in the context of what you're talking about, so for the most part, it feels like it's U.S. foundations that are in the space that you're in, in terms of we're a foundation and the approach that you described in terms of we're not setting an agenda, we're asking the people to come to us and for us to support them in doing what they need to do and what they want to do. It reminds me of his conversation about accountability. And so the foundation world being more accountable to the people it's serving than those people it's serving having to be, it's a two-way street, definitely. So in that regard. So thinking about Africa, right, particularly in the policy scenario, because what I do know is that there aren't that many organizations, foundations that are working in the policy side, the way that say, your organization is working to influence policy and where we in Africa have the most struggle is in exactly that, creating policy, implementing policy, maintaining policy. So what are your thoughts on and what are you seeing in the industry, your industry around really focusing on how to, I guess, replicate what you do in the African context? Yeah, so I think, so I would say, that because we are funders, we try to stay away from the implementation piece. And we certainly fund folks who are doing the implementation work. And I think that we, mm-hmm. one of my colleagues, Maria Kisumbi, actually has been ex- excellent at sort of cultivating our Africa portfolio to make sure that we have real 
organizations that are focused on the continent and supporting them to, towards policy change. So uh, the mm-hmm. Institute for Security Studies uh, is one example. IPSS in Addis is another example, and they do the Tanner Forum, and so and we fund them. So I think part of it for us is actually helping to cultivate these organizations exist, but helping to give them resources to further their attempts at policy change. And there's also a lot of organizations that I've worked with, sort of like the Center for Democratic, Democracy and Development or Partners with Africa and Nigeria that I'm on the board of, where like these folks are actively engaging government on a daily basis to say, you can do better and let's show you how you can do better. Mm-hmm. And not there's suddenly the back and forth of, do you need to be combative or do you need to collaborate? And I think they find the balance between like, when do we need to attack the government versus when do we need to collaborate with the government? I would say on whole, many of the governments that we work with, when I say we, I mean like African people, so in my organization, are not as responsive as we'd like them to be. And they're mm-hmm. not doing enough for, the, for people, right? Mm-hmm. So I would say the Nigerian government, which is what I know best, is one where there's just so much that the Nigerian government should be doing and is tasked with doing and neglects to do. Right. Mm-hmm. So like the idea of like policy change within uh, Nigeria, I, people like Kemio Kenyado or Idayat Hassan, I have such respect for them because it's like swimming against the tide. Right. Because there's this government that clearly, to be fair, has a ton that it's trying to deal with, but also just isn't doing what it should be doing. So how do you actually hold them to account while saying, but we want to help you is I think it's a, it's a difficult task. I would argue that many of them are doing this work and they're doing it meaningfully and doing it well. Because there are some things that are changing. So if you think of um, both uh, Idayat and Kemi now sit on the Human Rights Commission in Nigeria. And I, I think part of that is the acknowledgement of like you have to be a player to actually try to make change, right? So you, it's not enough to say we're not going to do this. Mm-hmm. But on a Mac on a continent-wide level, I think that there's these folks find each other, right? And then you sort of create these like coalitions of folks who are working with the African Union to say, how can we improve the African Union? Who are working with their own country governments to say, how can we make things better? And so like, I think it's in that local, regional place that we sort of start to see some change where there's pressure upward and, and across, right? And then I mentioned earlier citizens' engagement. And I think part of the reason I find that to be uh, my own driving force is because it's this sort of the globalizing of citizens' engagement that I think I will see some answers of like, the problems that folks are facing in Nigeria are different from the problems folks are facing in Kenya or in Ghana. But what is clear is there is a dissatisfaction with government and a desire to make government work better. So how do we marshal those things? And citizens are beginning to do that themselves, right? To say, let's marshal ourselves and let's sort of organize for change. And so as long as those things are happening, I think we're going to get closer. It's not as easy in a straight line, but I would actually remove ourselves as funders um, out of that because I think what we might do is throw some funds to spur action that's already happening, but that action is is irrespective of us, right? We can be, we can help instigate that in some ways, but like if we're central piece of that, then it's not real change. What we yeah. want is to sort of say, where's the energy, where's the momentum, and then how can we sort of like help move it along rather than sure. be the ones that are driving that change. Sure, sure. So what is the profile of this typical citizen that is able to marshal effort to become that activist? That's changing, right? So if you think of like the traditional like leader who was like a 45, 50 year old, or actually, I suppose at this point, maybe a 50 something year old person uh, mm-hmm. who was like a college activist when they were like in the University of Ibadan and then has grown up sort of through the pipeline and is now a society actor, right? So I think that there was, and there some of those folks still exist, right? You have the professional civil society folks. But I think what we saw in Nigeria recently with the NSARS movement was like, those were all young people, right, who were saying, 
the over-policing and the over-securitization of my country and with this particular police force is problematic. So I'm going to put myself on the line and I'm going to like go out and protest during a pandemic, no less, right? Like organized. Like I think that that's becoming the sort of the new face of like the activists in many African countries, right? Like folks who are individual citizens who are just fed up, who are saying, let's do something. I would argue that the success though is when those folks can collaborate with the professional actors, right? And like, I think for me, when I was at Partners Global or at the National Democratic Institute, what we looked for wasn't just like, a, do you have a civil society organization or an NGO? It's like, do you actually have a real constituency, right? There's the joke that several folks, I think it was in Uganda, make like a briefcase NGO where like, it's just you and yourself and you're the NGO. Like, that's not what we're looking for, but it's more so, do you have like support and do you have people, a constituency behind you? Right. And I think that those folks who are the professionals, like need those folks who are on the street. And so the question is, how do you begin to take away the distrust or the mistrust that might exist? And how do you begin to say, let's filter some of these things into uh, professional organizations, but professional organizations alone will not be the solution because sometimes they are co-opted by governments, right? So there's the inside-outside game that is often necessary. But I think that the face of the activist is actually changing very much. And the win for us will be when those new activists are able to sort of say, how do we make change in ways that are still activistic and pushing our governments, but also realizing that there's some structures that exist that have been fighting these battles. So how do we sort of coalesce together to make that change together? Mm-hmm. So it's always the group is stronger than the, the individual. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So let me ask you this. So why the where? So how did you come to be living and working and playing where you currently live? That's a good question. So I came to the U.S. when I was 11, like I said, and I came because of a medical condition. So I was born with spina bifida and I could not have surgery. Well, actually, I had the first surgery when I was, I think, two weeks old and I tried to close my spine. So let me back up. Spina bifida is a hole in the spine mm-hmm. uh, and where the hole is basically what depends on like how bad the condition is. Um, mine was actually at the very bottom. So when I was born, my parents were told I would never walk. And yeah, and as it turns out, I'm walking not great. I mean, I was... Uh, Gate. My gate is not straight, but like I, I certainly walk places. Like I can go on hikes and things. But in any case, I came for um, for medical reasons. And then I was that child who was like eight year old in nature, who was like interested in U.S. politics. And as it turns out, my dad came for a university fellowship in the United States. Right. So like I was living the dream, so to speak, as, right. as an eleven year old. Like oh, this is the, interesting. the that I live for and that I'm not like actively engaged in. Yeah. But I think to the more immediate question, it's I was always sort of curious about like what does the world look like and why does the world look like it does, right? Like I was like inequality for me as a child was something that I recognized very early on, mm-hmm. whether that was like my civil servant parents, like my dad was a professor, my mom was a teacher, and there were still days that we didn't have like food at home. And not because we were poor, but because like salaries were not paid regularly. Mm-hmm. And my parents did a really good job, I would argue, of helping us understand like there's poverty and then there's what we have. And like what we have is not poverty, right? Like what we have is scarcity. And but like in a week, we will have something at home because like we will get paid, right? Like, but like you have two parents, one who is a PhD, one who's a master's degree and is a a vice principal. So like, don't think you're poor because there's real poverty. But nonetheless, like growing up in Nigeria and then moving to a place like Newark, like I really could see like what it looks like to like, what the face of inequality look like. And so like who has it, who doesn't? And I was very curious at a very early age, why does that exist? And so like, I was very passionate about social justice all through high school, whether that was around white privilege, male privilege, and my own privilege as a a boy then, uh, and now as a man. Those are things that I've always been very interested in uh, probing and in exploring. Mm. So I knew from an early age that I was going to like study poli-sci. I didn't know if I was going to go to law school or policy school, but I certainly knew that those are questions that I needed to, like, wanted to tease out. And I think that's sort of like what's led me into the various things that I've done, right? So 
I was initially, like I said, doing inner city education work and then decided actually, I think it was my junior year in college that I wanted to sort of do like the, I, there was a part, a large part of my world, right? I just stopped, I ignored my Africanness, right? And I sort of like, it was, I'm living in the US. I am like, I'm not African-American. I know that much, but like I'm very much like associated and aligned with. And then I think it was junior in college that I was like, oh, but there's this part of my identity that I just have never teased out. So let me actually explore this. And in that process, I really got back, sort of got into like, a, what does the African continent need? And then I, that's when I started to do HIV AIDS work and sort of like thinking through, well, this is like, this was 2004, uh, right? So like HIV AIDS was like, like the, at that point, like the, the most critical crisis on the continent, right? And so trying to figure out what could I do to support that uh, uh, when I, and potentially going back home. And then sort of went to grad school, decided, hoping to focus on HIV AIDS and then really got into this calling of like, I really care. I think the solution to the HIV AIDS crisis isn't just a better health system. It's actually getting citizens to be engaged and decide not who the, like, not what is the health ministry going to do, but like who is the health minister and who gets to elect them and like what are, uh, select them, I suppose, right? And like, what does they, what does it look like for them to be part of the process? So like, I think for me, it became a question of how do you make sure that the people who are most affected by whether it's conflict or health crises are the ones that are driving the change, right? So like, I think that that's sort of like, that was my trajectory of going from this boy was like, yes, this is politics, politics. Is, and I'm still fascinated by politics, right? And so that there's this discord, discordant thing of like understanding politics as a game to then realizing actually politics matters and politics matters because politicians eventually lead to policy, policy making, right? And so how do you make sure that like it's not a sport, but that it's actually real lives are at stake? So whether that's the who we elect, like what who we elect decides what the Super Bowl looks like, which then interprets what legislation looks like, or who we elect decides what the bureaucracy looks like and who who do I want in the DHS or who do I want in the political positions at various institutions? So I think those are things that took a while for me to get clear on, but like the macro part was always very clear for me of like uh, the goal of the world is to make the world better. And like I said, my parents were very instrumental in sort of helping us frame that world of like, we're here and we have to make change. So what does that change look like and how do we get there? That was, is, I, I would argue I'm still figuring out, but like those are the things that sort of got along the way like clearer as I've gotten older and more, kind of more experience. Mm, very interesting because that's a little bit of my road in policy, right? Because hmm. out of undergrad, I did Teach for America. I taught in Washington, D.C. Hmm. And, you know, Teach for America is a two-year commitment. So at the end of my two years, I was obviously, oh, let me go to grad school. And so my initial thought was education policy because I had, I feel like I succeeded in my classroom and did a good job of teaching my students. But I wanted to move into the side of what's really wrong with this education system. But then on further thought, looking more at what was really wrong with my students, and it wasn't that my classroom was necessarily ineffective. Sure, I could have used more supplies in a better way or what have you. But it was that their home life was disrupted because uncle didn't have a job or grandma didn't have a job or there was some kind of disruption on the economic side. And so that drove me to study urban policy and economics as opposed to education policy. And so I absolutely understand how you went through all of those iterations to kind of figure out this is the problem that I now feel like I need to solve. And probably how you came to be where you are now outside of education and health policy, looking at those bigger those bigger things. Yeah. That is very similar, actually. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. So let's talk about, we know why you're in DC and I know that you've lived abroad, I believe that you've lived abroad. So let's talk about Glocal Speak. And I wanna ask this, I guess it can be in the context of wherever you choose, 
but we want to hear what you hear. So I ask you to share a word, a phrase, or a saying that is a meaningful part of your local experience and why or how you came to value it as Glocal Speak. Hmm, interesting. So the, the one that comes to mind, and I actually, I think this quite often, so I think that's probably why it comes to mind. It's looking is free or it's free to look. Right. So, uh, and I got this phrase, the first time I heard it was in Tanzania, uh, in Zanzibar, actually, like where it's a tourist site. And so like the, you're sort of trying to like walk through places and like, you're like, I don't want to go into the shop because if I go in, they wouldn't want me to buy something. (laughs) And I remember walking past once and this guy says, looking is free. I'm like, of course looking is free. Right. Uh Uh, But like, that's like Uh the entry point. And I think of that now, right. Because like, if you think of like various, like in the context that we're in of like, it's, it really is free to look. And as a manager of people, like the idea of like exploring and like helping people sort of like the spirit of play and like that's experiment with things, right? Like there's just, there's nothing wrong with like looking, like we can decide later, actually we've thought about this, we're no longer interested in doing this, right? Like it's so let's, but it's free to look, it's free to explore. And also like in the larger context or like in the world that we're in, where like there's like the barriers to entry for most things are so low, which are sometimes problematic and sometimes positive but like it's like that very phrase from a tor- from a, a market person uh, in Tanzania really has translated for me in many different ways like it's free to look it's free to explore it's free to do all these things like what costs money is the actual okay so I'm gonna like now buy this I made this decision to like get this thing but until we get to that place it's free to look like it's and I, I very mm-hmm. much uh, I have a four-year-old and I, I'm hoping that he grows up in a world where like he understands like there's I mean, he's a black child, so like, I think he will very understand, he will understand consequences as well. Unfortunately, in some sense, right? But I do hope that we raise him in a way that this the spirit of exploration and like walking into places without any obligation of like there's going to be once you walk in here, you've already bought the store. It's like you walk in here. If you don't want to buy anything, it's okay to walk out. That's the kind of world that I want to raise him in, and I'm hoping that like the folks that I collaborate with or that I work with, like we all sort of like invite that spirit of it's free to look. Yeah. Nice. I like that one. Yeah, that's a great way of thinking about the world. It is free to look. And it's, and even, you know, I was listening to someone or some lecture, it's actually free. It's, well, there are limitations, this, but particularly in our privileged societies, it's actually free to learn. Also that. Yep. Because you can go onto any university campus, any, you know, for the most part, and you can audit any class that you want. You can have a free degree. Like I'm someone said that, I'm like, you know what? That's true. You could just go in, study, you know, create your own curriculum, but you could actually have like this higher level. Oh, I know what it was in. It was in The Case Against Education, that book. So, yeah, so I'm a, some books I read, some books I listen to, and that's one of the listening ones. So I was hearing it and I was like, that's true. You could actually go into any university for the most part and get a free education. So I love that. That's true. That mindset of I'm free to be and be at these places and facilitating a world that is that I'm very happy that you are in that space. Yeah. And also just on that point, just in the COVID world where like the barriers to actually engaging, at least in the digital space is lower now, where it used to be that you have to like fly to a country mm-hmm. to like participate in conferences, right? Like now you could actually just zoom into a conference mm-hmm. uh, and there are folks who are still unfortunately being left out in that process. But I think the COVID world, one of the benefits, I would argue, is the, the expansion of participation. Mm-hmm. So it literally has become even freer to look mm-hmm. um, across borders. Yeah, right? so. yeah, yeah. So are you back in an office or are you still working remotely? I'm working remotely. Our office is open, the option to go in, but no one is required to go in. So I'm, I live in the outskirts of D.C., mm-hmm. a Maryland suburb. And so because it takes a while to get in, if I have meetings, I will stay in. But I generally work from home most days. So. Yeah, which is kind of a, a lovely thing, I think, right? Like, 
this new world, let's see how long it lasts, right? (laughs) We've had partners who say to us, unfortunately, they don't think this is going to last this whole, like, let the world into your events thing. Unfortunately, at some point, we are going to, their theories, we're going to go back into places where, like, the barriers to entry are greater. um, And we're going to lose a lot, I think, in that process. Yeah, exactly. Unfortunately, in a time when we still have economic crisis, because I think that's what a lot of people are not recognizing is that there are still economic crisis that's falling out from this. Absolutely. If anything, it's gotten worse because of the pandemic, right? Exactly. So let's talk a little bit more about some of the other activities that you're involved in. So I'd never heard of the Truman National Security Project. So what exactly is that work involving? So Truman is an organization that's based in D.C. and was founded after the, well, I guess, yeah, in the aftermath of the Iraq War. And it's basically progressives, a bunch of progressives who believe that the U.S. has a role to play in the world. Okay. And so military solutions might be necessary. But we want to we use military solutions and we want to have a clear-eyed moral uh, foreign policy. And so like all of us, it's an application process where you uh, apply to be either a security fellow or a political partner or a defense partner. I happen to be a security fellow. Mm-hmm. And so what we all have in common is this desire to see the U.S. leadership in a particular way, in the ways that are positive and progressive for the world, mm-hmm. while being clear that the U.S. has there. And I would argue there's a lot of things about the U.S. that are problematic, but the U.S. still has a role to play. And so like all of us are trying to figure out what are the forward leading ways to have the U.S. shape the world or to shift the U.S.'s own policy, but also the U.S. shape the world in ways that we find to be positive and less destabilizing. Mm, okay. Okay. And so basically it's more of like a think tank situation uh, where you're thinking together and coming up with like you're writing. Yeah, it's an, it's, an affili- it's an affiliation group where we're um, oftentimes just we're aligned together. So we all don't, they're chapters. So like they're chapters, they our chapter meetings, I guess, virtually now. Uh, in the before times, there were in-person chapter meetings where, like, we mm-hmm. talk about different things. But like, what we all have in common is the affiliation, the Truman affiliation, and knowing that we're in a room together. The fact that we're all sort of our Trumans together means we probably share a worldview, and so there's an encouragement to collaborate as a result of that. Hmm. Interesting. And so then you also are on the Council on Foreign Relations. When I was in grad school and more in the policy space, I would look at the magazine more often and just be more tuned into that. And I was always very curious about the back end of that. So tell us a little bit more about that. And, and uh, how yeah. So the council, so I, I would say just the, for full disclosure, I'm a term member. So it's a five-year membership. There are life members of the council who were sort of okay. like, they're accepting they will be there for the rest of their lives. I will hopefully at some point apply to be a term member and maybe they'll say yes if I'm lucky. Okay. But so essentially it's similar to Truman, it's a, mm-hmm. a, affiliation of folks who apply and well, I guess yeah, you apply as people write your recommendations and then you're able to attend events mm-hmm. and also just, again, write, think, and sort of help think through what the world should look like and participate mm-hmm. with a coalition of people who are willing. I think for many of these things, there's the old world of like, it used to be very white and very male. And I would argue right. um, CFR still is in some ways that, right? Yeah. I think there's a, the term membership was an acknowledgement of this and sort of thinking through how do we diversify the foreign policy space and how do we open up the aperture for folks who may not be the traditional foreign policy professional to be part of the mm-hmm. conversation. And my cohort of the term member program, I think it's pretty diverse in terms of like more women, more people of color. And over time, mm-hmm. I think all of us that are term members have been intentional about bringing other folks or encouraging other folks to apply with hopes that they get in to like make the, again, to reshape what foreign policy looks like. I think the U.S. foreign policy apparatus is still is very white and still very male. And mm-hmm. so there's a lot of work to do. But I would mm-hmm. argue CFR's role and like our role within CFR is sort of trying to think through how do we improve that and how do we make it a more 
I don't know if that's CFR's goal. I think our goal within CFR is how do we make the policy space and the foreign policy landscape more diverse and more like America so that the policies that we then make as a result of those of us that become policymakers or decision makers are in line with what the rest of the world or what the rest of the country looks like and thinks. Hmm, interesting. And so I'm assuming the foreign policy and the, um, the security side of things was an outgrowth of your work at certain times. And so how has it supported your career from the times when you first initiated these relationships and then how is it supporting your career now? Yes, I think a lot in terms of relationships, right? I think a poli- like one of the currencies of policymaking is relationship building, right? Like at the end of the day, like people are not gonna just do what want because they like you. It's like, how do you like over time, yeah. how do you build these relationships? So I, throughout my career, sort of like applied for and joined uh, different professional memberships that I think are important for me to like broaden my own horizon, but also to expand my network of folks. And I think, so as I remember walking to my class at Georgetown in my first year in 2006 as a, a first year of master student and being just surrounded by like, all these like white folks who are studying like Africa policy and being like, why in God's name does this, are these people studying my continent and they look like this, right? <laughs> like, no offense. Like, I mean, there's no shortage of like white folks who like, I, yeah, who I like I'm associated with and like and my wife is a Hungarian woman, right? And so like there's no shortage of people who I think are like in the right who are white folks who are doing the right thing, and also no shortage of colleagues or white colleagues who think the right things about the continent. But I certainly felt very out of place in a place mm. that was supposed to be studying me. So like I think for me it was a lot of like the work that I've done, a lot of the memberships that I've done is sort of thinking through like how do we become more diverse and how do we sort of like make the world the world of Africa should look more African. Like, I think that's something we can all agree on. And so like, yeah. for me, these memberships and these things is like, how do I find folks who think like me and who are able to like help support me in the process of making that our foreign policy or our international development sector look more like the rest of us? Sure, sure. That makes sense. And so part of that probably is why you teach. Yes, I just, yeah, I, I love, um, yeah, I love supporting people, right? And like, I think for me, yeah. like the idea of being able to like expand people's thinking, I always joke that if I was like, if I was from a more affluent family, I might've like just chosen to be a career counselor for the rest of my life. Because like, I think just helping people find their paths is something that I find yeah. like very fulfilling. Sure. As it turns out, maybe it is fulfilling and I just haven't found that path to get there, but like, yeah, that's something <laughs> that I would just really enjoy. And so teaching is an opportunity to do that for sure. Sure, sure. So tell us, and I ask this often of academics, and even in my work as a working in education, is how would you change the way that policy is taught? One thing that I do in my class that I do intentionally is more exposure to foreign policymakers. So like even when I taught a course that was America in the World, that was very much a theoretical. So like this is the way that the world works. Like there's like different ways that one can think of like liberal perspective, realist perspective, and all these things. So what I've always done was actually bring practitioners to the room to actually have conversation with folks of like, so, hi, friend, you used to work at the uh, State Department as a chief of staff within this bureau, help my students understand how policy actually gets made, right? Mm-hmm. And then last semester, I taught foreign policy in practice, where basically every week was bringing a woman of color or a man of color to my students to help them understand like, this is what policy looks like, partially so that they can envision themselves, uh, students of color uh, in the foreign policy apparatus, but also because I wanted them to really understand what policy looks like. So like, I think for me, both poli-sci and policy classes could afford to be much less theoretical and much more practical. Because yeah. at the end of the day, my Georgetown program was very much... I learned a lot, actually, there was quite a lot of practitioners, but it was very, like, like the last thing you do is like a, a thesis that is very quantitative. And so mm. I, I ran a regression from data that I got in Rwanda 
I've never mm-hmm. used a regression analysis again, nor will I, thankfully, because it's not exactly. To do. Yeah, uh, exactly. But what would have been perhaps more beneficial was like a more practical experience to say, okay, so let's have you work with some folks within some agencies. And those opportunities, not to say they didn't have them, it's not the one that I, that wasn't the pinnacle of the experience, right? But like, how do you actually have real practical experience engaging with policymakers and engaging with thinkers and with practitioners? I think if policy did that more often, we would have better policy students and even like in the pre-policy master's degrees, like better policy students as well. Yeah. I mean, I feel like we're in a place right now where one of the highest demand jobs that I think is out there is policymakers, policy implementers, but there's a very low supply of those people that are willing and able to take on those roles and really understand understand it in the context that you even just explained it because they're not being taught the practical side of it. So, you know, you have poli sci majors all over the world that don't have, that are living in this theoretical place without the actual hands-on experience that you're describing. And so I really valued my policy education because first of all, I'm kind of a little bit of a heretic and I didn't take the recs first. I was all in the electives. (laughs) Until I have to, I'm not going to take this classes. Yeah. And the electives are where you, I'm sure that's where a lot of your coursework is. You're not teaching the, you know, the, um, the big hall classes. You're teaching these smaller, more intimate, more practical classes that help you understand the work that you're preparing yourself to be in. And so I think that I then was able to better utilize and know that even in that capstone where we did that whole regression, what was more important, because I wasn't the stats person, I let the guy who's the stats person do that. What was more important was my use and discussion of how the actual practical applications were going to be for what it was that we were studying. So yeah, that's a a hurdle. I think we in the US academia, but particularly globally, because I think there are fewer policymakers that are willing and able to go into the classroom and in the academic side to give that insight. So maybe there's an opportunity for maybe offering that digitally for poly potential students. So I'm putting that out there, listeners. If you have that in you, let's do it. Because yes, please do your students a favor. Right? <laughs> yes. that's, that is where we're failing. So I keep coming back to it's like where we're failing is citizens don't have this information because there's no one who's in their face to a lot of times the structures are there. We have these structures. We're failing because the people in those structures are very comfortable doing nothing because no one's putting pressure on them. I think, yeah, many governments in the world exist as they are because either there's yeah. not enough pressure on them or they figured out ways to insulate themselves from pressure, for sure. Absolutely. Exactly. But it dovetails nicely into my, my mindset hack question. <laughs> so what is your favorite or an innovative mindset hack? Now, this is one that you can imagine or one that you know of. So I I don't know why I'm in the role of court today. My mom had this phrase, every disappointment is a blessing in disguise. And I think mm-hmm. for me, it's a mindset hat because like I growing up with a medical condition where like there were mm-hmm. just days where like many things were crappy. Like I had to sort of figure out like, okay, so this thing happening mm-hmm. right now does not the end of me, right? It's not like, it's mm-hmm. not all of me. So like, mm-hmm. I think being able to like, sort of like tell myself that phrase growing up was very helpful. And even now as an adult, like there are days when like I'm about to go to an important meeting and then like something about my medical condition like rouse itself up and like it could very easily like ruffle me, but like I sort of like walk through this thing of like, this does not consume me or this is not all of me, right? So like this is a disappointment, mm-hmm. but like there's a blessing in here somewhere that I think mm-hmm. has been super helpful. So like, I think that that's, one thing on a practical level, like I think like Twitter is actually my, my biggest mindset hack. And I, think <laughs> I find it to be both like a source of 
procrastination as well as just like useful information. Like there's a lot of like the dumpster fire that people call Twitter. So like I, I see that piece, but I've actually found it to be like a good way to sort of like see the world and see all of the, not all of the world, many parts of the world at once, right? And so to sort of see different yeah. perspectives. Yeah. And like there are times when like I, things are happening in the world and like, okay, let me just like take a break and see like what other people are saying about this, right? Because like, I think I've curated my, at least my own um, folks that I follow to be not like one way, but like to have a diverse set of thoughts and also like folks that are from the continent, the folks that are from the US, folks that are from other parts of the globe. Mm-hmm. So like, I think mm-hmm. uh, in that, I sort of feel like I have some safety to be able to like escape and escape into news <laughs> as it turns out, but nonetheless, like have like different kinds of news sources and different kinds of information. So that I found that's actually the, uh, and maybe this is my, my older millennial <laughs> that is like showing, but like I've actually found Twitter to be quite the, like a mindset hack of like experiencing mm-hmm. different things as a result of this one platform, because it's all there. And I know that the world is not Twitter, but yeah, but you, you put that very well because you first recognize it it's a distraction and a procrastination tool, but then you you know that there's value in it and so that you're able to discern and discriminate in using that because I find that a lot of people like are say are down with different social media apps and platforms because of this distraction concept, but it takes discipline to figure out and curate, as you're saying, you know, the world that you want to inhabit in that space for it to be useful, as well as playtime, basically. So I, I get it. I get it. I'm not such a Twitter, a Twitterati. <laughs> and it's mostly because I just screen time. It's a screen time thing for me. So how long have you been a Twitter user? Oh, that's a good question. Actually, I wasn't an early adopter. Um, I joined Twitter, I think, when I was in Iraq. So it would have been 2011. Um, mm. And I actually remember one of my good friends being like, oh my God, is on Twitter. What happened? Um, and then, like, so I think, I don't forget when Twitter was founded, but like I was not an early adopter. But since 2011, I've actually found it to be, um, I guess, 10 years now. Yeah. Um, a good okay. use of my time. Okay. So that's your go to social media platform. Yeah. I actually quit Facebook for a while and then. At some point I had a job that required me to get on Facebook, but I've just never like fully gotten back into Facebook. And like I, I get, Facebook used to be what I used Twitter for, which is like express my thoughts and mm-hmm. see other people's. And now I'm like, I'm on Facebook because like my friends like put pictures on there. So like, I'm like, oh, let me go see mm-hmm. what, what they did last mm-hmm. weekend. Although right, I guess right. Instagram is there, but like I, I have an Instagram account, but I don't really understand it. No. So I don't. Ah, it interesting. It's so interesting how these things work, you know, when everyone finds their channel and what's their best broadcast place. So I get it. I get it. Okay. Wow. So we started to move in this direction with the distraction conversation and the not so distraction conversation. So who is Kehinde when he's not working or thinking about foreign policy or writing a story on foreign policy or working with multinationals and working with governments? Who are you? Who are you when you're, when you're yourself? I am uh, first and foremost, I think, a father and husband. Okay. And I say that in the context of like, I, my wife and I both think very thought, we, we try to be very thoughtful about how we raise our child um, uh-huh. and sort of like what world we want him to grow up in and what world we want him to live within, in both in our household and also like in the outside world that he's in. So like, I think that's something that consumes a lot of my own mental energy. And also mm-hmm. the fact that we're raising a black boy yeah. for all intents and purposes, like there's a point where he's going to get older and like, I want the world that he's in to look a particular way. And I want him to have a particular perspective in the world that is, I, I would hope, helpful uh, for him to grow up in. So I think the father and husband uh, is one that is primary for me. I think the second thing, which might be related, is also like I'm an introvert and a homebody. Like I could spend the entire like 
rest of my life, like in my house and not actually having to go outside. Um, although I will say this pandemic has taught me that I'm perhaps a little bit, um, I, I, I appreciate human attention. <laughs> and so like I, perhaps I'm not entirely as, I, I used to think I could live in a cave for the rest of my life, which I was that I actually can't, but um, yeah. I do like have very cave-like tendencies and I could, I, I could stay home all day, just like sometimes just vegetating on TV or being on Twitter, just reading news and then okay. spending an hour or two hours outside uh, rather than the reverse. So. Okay, got it, got it. So, are you a reader or a watcher or a listener? I am. I'm a listener and a watcher. I used to read a lot of books. I will admit, and it's not because we have a child, because my wife is a voracious reader. So, I, yeah. clearly, she finds time. I've just not been able to like find the time and energy to like read books the way that I used to enjoy doing it. But I listen to a lot of podcasts, and I think one of the biggest downsides of the COVID pandemic is my commute time is cut in so much less that I don't get to listen to as many podcasts as I used to. But I used to have, I think, a rotation of like six or seven like regular podcasts that I, uh, and now I'm actually getting back into it a bit uh, now that I take our, our child to school in the mornings. So like, I think I'm a listener. And then like I will spend some time so like just on like at the end of the night, just like vegetating, either like working and watching TV or just like watching TV and like not and ignoring the mm-hmm, rest of the world. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So tell us, what are some of the podcasts that you listen to? So the two that I listen to almost every day up first, it's NPR's daily podcast. That's sort of like mm-hmm. a 10 minutes of the what's happening in the world. And then Punchbowl is another sort of like a political, I mean, mm-hmm. they were actually from Politico, but like they're two uh, politicos, political journalists uh, who give us like the rundown of the day's news. Mm-hmm. So those are two that I consistently devour. Code Switch was one that I listen to, I have not done as much because of the, I don't have had, had a lot of reading time. I'm not mm-hmm. of like commuting time, but Code Switch was one that I really enjoyed. And then mm-hmm. the Hacks, David Axelrod's podcast, Hacks on Tap with uh, David Axelrod and Robert Gibbs and Mike Murphy. So it's three political, <laughs> there's a theme here, it's like political yeah. journal, journalism. Yeah. Um, yeah. I really just enjoy like their dissection of the world. Yeah. And then Stop Judgment actually used to be like my one thing that was like completely just like stories where there was no relation to like anything. So I did mm-hmm. a lot of Snap Judgment and just like hearing different like storytelling. Storytelling with a beat, I think, was like the Snap Judgment uh, theme. Okay. Nice. So those will be in the show notes, folks. We always like to give you a little bit of after effects with the insight of our guests. This has been very lovely. Thank you for making time and spending some of your extrovert time with me. <laughs> Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed uh, thinking and uh, talking to you. Yeah. So before we go, do you have any last words for our listeners? Looking is free. I think we should okay. all uh, explore the world and uh, sort of just, I'm, I'm actually not as uninhibited as I <laughs> allow myself to pretend that I am, but I do think yeah. I think I would love to walk through the world. Like I said, just like with that ability to just walk in and out of places and explore. Yeah. yeah. I think we all could do Absolutely. more of that for sure. Yeah. I think that's what humanity is meant to be and meant to do. Absolutely. Which is why you work for Humanity United. <laughs> well, well played. <laughs> yeah. Kende, thank you so much for joining us. We are very happy to have you here. And I would love to invite you back for more discussions and some panel conversation and just kind of solution scaping at some point. So I hope you're open for that. I would love to do that. And uh, so listeners, this has been another episode of the podcast. You can catch us each and every Tuesday with a new episode at www.localcitizenspod.com, wherever you get your podcasts, Google, Amazon, Audible, actually, Spotify, you know the drill. Take a look, take a listen, write a review, share. We love that. 
And so until next time, bye for now.